I ask for permission to make one announcement today, and that is about uh, the Robbie Zacharias ministry will be coming here. Um, C.S. Lewis Institute is, is a discipleship training program that a number of our people have and are going through. It's a wonderful program. It, as well as the Colson ministry, have great opportunities for this. And we have sucked up to the C.S. Lewis people and, and been merciless in our attempt to gain their favor so that when they bring in outside speakers, we host it. So we had Daryl Bach speaking on culture. We had Oz Guinness for a luncheon. And we are privileged that we will have on April 6th Cameron McAllister, who is with the Ravi Zacharias Ministry. The Ravi Zacharias Ministry is well known in the area of apologetics, defending the faith, and Cameron McAllister is considered uh, a real up-and-comer, and I am thrilled that we get to host this and make it available to you. So it's uh, April 6th. It's $15 um, from 9 a.m. to 12.30 here at the church. You can go on the C.S. Lewis Institute website or call our church office to get more information or probably on our website. But I really want you to know this is an incredible opportunity to hear how to defend your faith. And then in the fall, we have Randy Newman come, not the short guy, people guy. Randy Newman, who is a Jewish believer out of New York City and has absolutely the best seminar on evangelism I've ever heard, and Kevin Goldsmith has lined him up for the fall. We'll have him all weekend and on the Sunday sermon as well. So we heard him through the C.S. Lewis Institute. That one they made the mistake of having at another church, so I'm bringing him up here for that. So... Uh, take advantage of these opportunities because you need to hear good sermons every once in a while, right? Um, we're continuing on our series that I've called The Prodigal Gospel. And what I'm doing with this is I'm looking at the story of the prodigal son, which is one of the most familiar of all the stories in the New Testament about the prodigal son who, who left his father and, and took his inheritance and wasted it away and came back and was accepted by his father. It's a story that you're familiar with. But what I'm doing is I'm using that to illustrate how, how Scripture has always defined God's relationship to us and His mercy. Now, the prodigal story doesn't have Jesus' death and resurrection because it, it prefigures that. It comes later. It, it brings us up to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. But it, it gives the foundational truth upon which the gospel is, is taught. And what we're doing then is looking at Old Testament passages to show how these themes come about. So, first we looked at the issue of the prodigal story as the story of a father. And I took you to Deuteronomy 32, which is the Song of Moses, in which the most famous Old Testament passage in which God proclaims Himself as the Father to His people. And when you look at Moses' song, he articulates what a father does. He, he, he gives life to his son, he nurtures his son, he protects his son, and he disciplines his son or daughter. I don't want to leave the women out. In other words, what, what you see there is, is Moses using the things that we understand to be what good fathers do and showing how that is what the Lord did for the nation of Israel. That's why the father is a perfect illustration of God in the story of the prodigal. Then last week, I wanted you to look at the circumstances that led up to the story of the prodigal, and that is that we make a choice. In other words, the son was remarkably blessed. He was a son of, of true privilege, as we would say today. He had incredible opportunities. 
But in spite of all of those opportunities, he had to make a choice. And so we looked at Joshua 24 in Joshua's famous farewell address when he reminded the people of Israel of all the privilege they had received at the hands of God. And he repeatedly showed how God had blessed the people of Israel by making them into a nation and bringing them out of Egypt and providing conquest of the land so that now they had houses they had not built and farms they had not planted. They were remarkably blessed, and and yet they still had to make a choice. And Joshua famously said, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the prodigal son was one who, when faced with all the privilege he had received, made a bad choice, right? So today I want to look at the prodigal. So we'll start with Luke chapter 15 to remind us of the story of the prodigal, and then I'm going to take you on a wild ride through the book of Judges. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them, and not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I want you to notice several things about the prodigal. First of all, he was a child of privilege. He was blessed, but he did not value his father because as soon as he could get what his father had, he left him. The relationship with his father was not a motivator for him. Only what his father would give him was what he cared about. He cared about the blessings, not the one who blessed And consequently, he readily took his father's inheritance and ran with it. The reality is that 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 is tempting for all of us to fall in love with others for what they give us, not for who they are. And it's especially egregious when we do that to the God of the universe. But that's exactly what the prodigal does. He, He says to the father, in effect, I don't have any need for you except for what you can give me. And having taken that, he then goes off to another land and fulfills his temptations for the flesh in wild living. And later on, it says prostitutes. He he goes after all that the world has to offer apart from his father and, and throws away all that he has because that's what the human flesh desires. It desires immediate satisfaction, immediate pleasure, And it will throw away what is lasting and good and eternal for immediate pleasure. And that's what the young man did. And God judges the prodigal by letting him go. C.S. Lewis is the one who famously said that God's ultimate judgment is, is given us what we ask for. So in explaining eternal separation from God, he said, after all, if you choose to reject Jesus as Savior, you've told God you don't want your his time. Therefore, God gives you what you ask for. You spend eternity separated from God. And the same theme is here. The son gets what he asked for. He gets all of his father's wealth. He gets to go spend it all on on pleasure. And what does he get? Nothing when it's all said and done because those pleasures ultimately don't satisfy. And, And in many ways, the consequences are judgment enough. 
And can you imagine how a Jewish hearer, listener, would respond to this? It goes so badly for him that not only when things turn bad, and by the way, they always do. Life always has bumps. It's only a fool who assumes that things will always be like they are now. Uh, Life always has difficulties. The flesh says, I got money now. I can spend it now. Uh, The wisdom says things will get rough in a future time, and I should set some aside. And when things get rough and he loses everything, he finds himself wishing. Oh, by the way, I'm supposed to tell you, I'm in the dark spot. In June, we will redo all the lighting of the church. A family foundation of the church is going to pay close to a quarter of a million dollars to totally redo all of our lighting and LED lighting. It'll be much better, and I won't have this dark spot anymore. But I kind of like it. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Um, anyway, um, I think I was talking about something else. <laughs> God's judgment on the prodigal is that he gets exactly what he asked for. And here is a Jew who is begging for the food of a swine. Remember, the kosher laws, they wouldn't have even had swine in Israel. And he not only couldn't eat swine, he wished he could have their piggy chow, if you know what I mean. I want to illustrate this by taking you to the book of Judges. Let me take you to the Old Testament beginning part. I left out a book when I did this in the first service. They noticed... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call that the law. That is the beginning of life, the beginning of Israel, and the freedom of Israel out of Egypt. It's it's a massive section that the Jewish people call the law or the Torah. And and the first week we looked at Moses' song and at the end of Deuteronomy 32 in which he described God as our father. Then there is Joshua, because when Moses gave over the leadership, he gave it to Joshua. And Joshua, whose name Yeshua means Jesus, is the one who provided for the nation of Israel the salvation which they longed for. He took them and he delivered them the land that God had promised. And at the end of chapter 24, we saw that choice that every child has to make. How will we respond to the blessings of God? Will we love his blessings or will we love him? Today, we're going to look at the book of Judges, which is one of the most disturbing books in the Bible, because the Judges is a book that's, that's full of stories that, quite frankly, are distressing. And in fact, I want to read you a summary of what will happen in the book of Judges, and this will give you a good in, uh, sense of it. In Judges chapter 2, verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. And after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. One of the greatest traits of immaturity is to neglect the past. It's been said that those who don't know the past are guaranteed that they'll repeat it. 
The reality is an, a, a lack of awareness for the past is always a failure of a generation. As we mentioned last week, first of all, it, it always reflects a lack of, lack of gratitude. But it also causes us not to learn from the past. And it is, it is the arrogance of generations that they think that previous generations have nothing to teach them. And I say that as a baby boomer. We started it, okay? I'm not picking on any young people. My generation was the first to march and say, don't trust anyone over 30 until we turn 30. But foolishness always chooses to ignore the lessons of the past. And here the nation of Israel has already forgotten, has already forgotten who their God is and what he's done. Verse 11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That phrase is repeated over and over and over in the book of Joshua because over and over they would fall back into disobedience. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal or Baal and the Ashereths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but instead prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned away from their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with them and judged them and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Notice how God's mercy just keeps coming back over and over again. They, they disobey. He allows them the consequences of their disobedience and judgment at the hands of their enemies, and then he relents when they cry out because he loves them. That's why the parent is the perfect illustration of who God is, right? I mean, when you're a parent, you discover in yourself this ability to keep loving these people who invade your home Expect a lot, and just when you get attached to them, they leave. Verse 19, but when the judges died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated my covenant, I ordained for them and their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use those nations to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. And the Lord allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2, the writer of the book of Joshua says, let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to have a cycle. And God is going to rescue his people and bring them blessing through a judge. But as soon as he dies, the people will fall back into disobedience. They will do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And when they do that, and when they reject His ways, the consequences of that, both uh, just the mere consequences as well as this discipline will come upon them, and things will get bad. And when they get bad, they'll cry out again. And God will allow them to hurt until, in His compassion, He sends another judge. Because that's humans. Julie and I have the privilege of going to Germany every year. We have grandchildren there. And we see our kids too. But every year we want to try to get over and go see our grandkids. And, and we, you go to that nation. And we can go in downtown Munich in the middle of the night and feel totally safe. Uh, downtown Munich is remarkably clean. And you go around the German people. First of all, they're really big people, which causes me to question whether Wildman really is a German name. The, I mean, they're just big people, but they're also incredibly impressive people. They're kind. They're serious about their society. They, it, it, they are such admirable people. And yet most of us, when we think of the Germans, we go straight back to World War II and say, oh, well, they're somehow evil. You know why we do that? Because we get confused about the nature of evil. We think it's something that only some people have. But according to Scripture, all of us have potential for great evil. And, and we, we are grossly unfair when we condemn the Germans as if somehow every generation for all of time will be responsible for what was done under Hitler. Just like we treated African Americans badly during the slave days, or Native Americans, by putting them in situations that are grossly unkind. The reality is that when you look at history, people do horrible things. People, not just certain people, people do horrible things. Even the nation of Israel, a nation that God had blessed remarkably, continually turns against God, falls into infant sacrifice and horrible things, and you look at them and say, well, they're just not like us. They're bad. No, that's, that's, that's just not true. Scripture says, the Apostle Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is, is, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The reality is that Scripture and all of human history says all of us are capable of horrible things. And it's my conviction that the reason our society is boiling so hot right now is we have generations that have been raised on the lie that humans are good. We have been taught through education over and over again that we're basically good and it's only our surroundings that make us bad. And now we're throwing a wall-eyed tantrum when we find out, well, you're not as good as I thought you were. But the truth of Scripture is we are all capable of horrible evil. And the prodigal is a perfect example of what you and I would do, that God, our Father, has blessed us in so many ways and yet we don't have any adherence to Him or Loyalty to him. We just want him to give us our stuff so we can go do what we want. In fact, let me illustrate that with one of the great examples of the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. Beginning with verse 6. After the Israelites, notice again, again the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is over and over and over in the book. 
They served the Baals or Baals and the Asherahs and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and Ammonites who had that very year shattered and crushed them. And for 18 years they were oppressed all the Israelites on either side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the Amorites, Ammonites, excuse me, also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaken our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord replied, when the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? Notice the theme of ingratitude. Notice the theme of forgetfulness. What have you done for me lately? God, verse 13, but you've forsaken me, and you've served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen and let them save you. I'll let you have what you want. You want other gods? You can have them. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And, and the next phrase is amazing. And he could bear Israel's misery no more. They got what they deserved, but because of his love, he couldn't stand watching them hurt. Verse 17, when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at the Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be head of all those living in Gilead. And Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute, already decay in the nation of Israel. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get an inheritance in our family, they said, because you are, not the, you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. And sometime later, when Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, Don't you hate me and drive, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why are you coming to me now? Because you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said, Nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be their head. And he said, If you mean it, I'll come. And they said, we mean it. You see subtly here the continuing themes of a decaying people. Notice they have no regard for Jephthah because do no fault to his own. He was born out of wedlock. But they value him when he can help them. They don't value people because they're people. They value people for what they can do for them. 
By the way, this is true in our history as well. If you've read anything about Winston Churchill, you find that every time that things got comfortable, the people of, uh, of the British the kingdom set him aside because he was uncomfortable for them. But then when things got hard, they would bring him back because they knew he would do the right thing and would lead them. He had his faults. My goodness, he had his faults. But, but sin views humans for what they can do for us, not for who they are. And Jephthah is therefore a, a perfect example of the way we treat people when they're useful to us. And Jephthah takes that reign and he goes and he seeks to negotiate with the enemies over, over land disputes and everything else. And, he's, and I don't have time to read it, but he's, he seeks to find a peaceful settlement but, he, settlement, but he can't. And ultimately he has to go to war with them and he brings victory as he had promised. In fact, if you skip down to 1129, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah after he couldn't reach a negotiated settlement. And he crossed Gilead and Manasseh and passed through the Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And verse 30 is the tragedy. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And he went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Jephthah's a hero, but he's a tragic one. Because verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home after this great miracle, uh, victory, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines. And she was an only child, Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I've made the vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Now, quite frankly, if he knew the Old Testament, if he knew the law, he could have broken this because a sacrifice of a, of, a, of a human is clearly forbidden in the Old Testament. And there were means by which you could redeem someone by a set amount of silver. And some believe that she wasn't killed because of his vow, but instead was set apart as a virgin to be used in the temple worship. And that's possible, but my reading of it, I think she may actually have been killed. And you read it and you think, well, that, what's that about? It's about our depravity. We're broken. People are broken. We can be incredibly blessed, and yet we can still find things to complain about. We can be unbelievably loved and still turn on the very people who love us. God will sometimes give us the consequences. You know, materialism, God allows you to have all your wealth, but then you lose all your relationships. Lust, God gives, allows you to have your pleasure, but you, you lose love. In other words, God will sometimes allow us to experience what we seek to experience to hopefully, like the nation of Israel, cause us to turn back to Him because the blessings come from Him, not those things. Uh, Jephthah is a remarkable illustration of the truth of the prodigal, and that is that no matter how much we're blessed, we can so easily slide away. 
And that's why we don't condemn other people because they're broken, because we know we're broken. When we say we're all sinners, it's not just theoretical, it's reality. But the reason that's powerful is because when you understand the depths of our depravity, then you begin to comprehend the magnitude of His mercy. God loves broken people. Jephthah's horrible. He makes this rash, stupid vow, bargaining with God because he thought bargaining was good, and he ends up losing his only child. The nation of Israel is awful. God continues to bless them, to give them this land and buildings they did not build and farms they did not plant, and God continues to bless them, and they turn away in evil. But God keeps loving. Like the father of the prodigal, he, he keeps celebrating when we come back. He, provi- he kills the fatted calf. He throws a party because he knows the depths of our depravity and loves us all the same. See, the story of the prodigal, for many of us, is just a theoretical story about that other guy who was really bad. But the reality is, the story of the prodigal is a story about you and I who are capable of, in spite of remarkable Blessings. To shake our fist in God and say, what have you done for me lately? And seek after the blessings rather than the ones who blessed. That's why the Father's love is so incredibly powerful. Because He loves people like Jephthah. Nations like Israel people like us. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you gave your son for broken people. Give us the same heart and love for the broken people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.